Pastors, it is so good to be back with you in the book of Matthew for our Amen Bible study. Uh, but I have to confess to you that when I saw our assignment this week to study all of chapter 12, all 50 verses, I was wondering to myself, who did this? Who designed this schedule? And then I realized, oh, it was me. I'm the one that designed this schedule. So uh, in the words of uh, one of my favorite pastors, Matt Chandler, down in Denton, Texas, uh, he would always say at the beginning of his sermons, are you ready to do some work? We're going to have to do some work uh, as we study this really important chapter in the Gospel of Matthew. And I want to do this for the way we start uh, today. What I'd like to do is I would like you to go ahead in a moment and push pause on this recording, however you're watching it, whether you're with a group of men or you're by yourself. I want you to push pause, and I want you to open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 12, and I want you to go ahead on your own to just read verses 1 through 50. Just go ahead and read it in its in its entire scope, because our, our goal today is going to be to focus on the scope of, of this chapter, not into the details of it. I know there's a lot here, and we've, we've studied in the past, whether it's in a uh, in our Sunday schools or in our um, worship services and through sermons. We studied some of the specifics, uh, the real specific details of this in regards to uh, Jesus being Lord of the Sabbath. Or, you know, we come across those verses that have to do with what sometimes people call the unforgivable sin. Uh, we're not going to be looking at, at those things. Those, those are important. We're going to be looking at the scope of what Matthew is intending to show us here. And I want us to notice the many ways, as you read, I want you to notice the many ways in which the Pharisees are in opposition to Jesus. And I want you to notice Jesus' response to that opposition. So go ahead and push pause, and uh, we'll pick up right after you've read it. All right, I guess you're back, and it's time for us to uh, go ahead and dig in. And as we do dig in, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the privilege that we have to sit under your word today. We would ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to us and you would show us what you want to teach us. Lord, may, may we be ready to receive what you have. Make our minds sharp and our hearts soft. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to remind us, even as we think of this passage, that the Pharisees were not always thought of as bad guys. I think, you know, growing up in, in the church and uh, listening to uh, the Gospels, it's often this assumption that everybody in, the, in Israel just thought that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, that all of them were just bad people. Um, they weren't. They were actually they were actually considered the the leaders of the religion. They were considered those who who held on to the truth, who actually studied God God's word and knew these things. Um, but of course, as we have seen over the last two thousand years, uh, as a result of their opposition of Jesus, Pharisee has come to mean something pretty negative. I think we've even seen that in the history of the church, um, not necessarily just our church, but the church over the last 2,000 years. At different times, Christians, in order to differentiate themselves from previous errors in the faith, have been called certain things. So, for instance, there were the Puritans um, who came to the United States, and Puritanism uh, was something that was uh, considered a good thing at the time. But somewhere along the lines, in some ways, people began to think in the culture that 
Puritanism meant something that was extra biblical was beyond that. Now, that's not exactly accurate, but it did have sometimes that connotation. Uh, fundamentalist is another term I think of where, you know, what that meant when it was originally established in the early 1900s was someone who would be looking at the fundamentals of Scripture, wouldn't be uh, caught up in liberalism, but would be focused on the Bible as and taking it literally um, in the places where it was meant to be taken literally. But of course, over time, fundamentalism has been treated by the culture as something as something bad, as something negative. And recently, in recent years, I think we've experienced that with the term evangelical. So that uh, where that was a term meant to differentiate itself from someone who was simply focused in on the rules of the of the Bible, but was really someone who wanted to share the love and, and the, the evangel, the gospel, the good news of Christ, as we've seen uh, really over the last five, six years in culture, evangelicals or evangelicalism is being treated as a as a negative thing, as a negative word. And, and in some ways, that's not uh, completely unfair because a lot of people who don't really follow the good news, who don't really follow, um, wholeheartedly follow Jesus, uh, claim to be evangelicals and, and claim to be part of evangelicalism. Well, what is the, the right term? What do we, how do we have a right term uh, as if we try to differentiate what is truly the gospel, what is truly uh, of the Lord Jesus? Well, this past summer, I read this book. It's an old book. It was actually published in 1949. The book is called Jesus and the Disinherited, and it's by Howard Thurman. And Howard Thurman uh, is a very small book, but it's a very influential book um, uh, at that time and, and has been since then. Um, in the book, he asked the question of himself, what does the religion of Jesus have to offer those with their backs against the wall. You see, he was struggling to come to grips with um, his own faith and what he saw in poverty and oppression and racism back in the late 40s. And he asked that question, what does the religion of Jesus um, have to offer those with their backs against the wall? Well, I read that sentence and that one phrase, religion of Jesus, caught my attention. And I thought, you know what, that's it. I want to be someone who follows the religion of Jesus. So as we look at the scope of this passage this day, I want us to look at the religion of Jesus in contrast to the religion of the Pharisees. And for us to see that here in Matthew 12, and then see how that applies to our own lives. As we look at the scope of this thing, I think there's there's six questions I, I think we could ask ourselves uh, looking at these 50 verses. And you see it there in the notes. The first question that we could ask ourselves as we look at verses 1 through 8 is, who has authority in this religion? In the religion of Jesus, who has authority in this religion? Now we see here in these eight, first eight verses that the challenge here, or the um, the picture here, the, the story here, is that Jesus and his disciples are walking along on the Sabbath. They're walking through this field, and they're grabbing grains, and they're eating this, eating the top of the grains. And the Pharisees, who are there, accuse them of breaking the Sabbath. They're, they're not following Sabbath practice. And I would say, listen, though those extra 39 laws and then all the details that went with it, 
um, which were extra biblical. It was just the 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 Pharisees and the the leaders of um, Judaism uh, expounding on when what God said when He said, "Keep the Sabbath holy," and they added all these things, real specifics of them. I just want to point out that though that was a burden. The Israelite people saw the Sabbath as something beautiful, something that they wanted to celebrate. Um, and Jesus here isn't trying to just fly in the face of keeping the Sabbath holy. Uh, and actually, in these first eight verses, he's not really addressing Sabbath practice. What exactly is the practice? What Jesus is addressing is who has authority to decide what Sabbath practice is. And that's an important question for us as we think about our own Christian faith and we think about the ways in which we demonstrate that and maybe the ways in which we apply a Christian world and view to world and life view to different situations. The question is not, you know, what do you think? What do I think? What does that guy think? What does this church think? What does that denomination think? Now, the bottom line question is, who has the authority to make that decision? And Jesus is saying here, I'm the one. In the religion of Jesus, I'm the one that has the authority to make this decision. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Now you see here in these eight verses that there's a couple of examples. It's interesting. One is the example of David, and the other is the example of the priests. And it might be confusing here to think, well, is he just saying because, you know, David kind of broke the rules and the priests broke the rules that it's okay if Jesus breaks the rules? I don't think that's what what Jesus is saying here at all and why he brings up the example of those two. And I think the clue to that is that phrase in verse six, when it says, when Jesus says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. And that clue, I think what Jesus is saying is I, Jesus am greater than David. I, Jesus am greater than the priesthood in the temple. So if you don't have a problem with the fact that, that David was able to have authority in that context there on the Sabbath. If you weren't, if you don't have a problem with with the priests having authority on the Sabbath in that context that's mentioned in the Old Testament, then you need to understand I am greater than David the king. I am greater than the priesthood in the temple. As a side note, I want to point out here that Jesus is introducing or showing us some some typological connections. Typological connections are what we see in Scripture where um, we're beginning to understand more and more that what was taking place in the Old Testament in many ways was a type of, uh, it was meant to point us to Christ. A type is not something, and typological connections, they they aren't saying that Christ replaces uh, the temple or that Christ replaces the the Davidic reign of of David or the Davidic reign through David, um, it's saying that Christ is fulfilling that and that David and his ministry and his reign was actually pointing to Christ. That what was taking place in the temple was actually pointing to Christ, and so it opens up our Old Testament as we've seen in our study of Genesis to begin to understand that uh, Jesus didn't come to replace things. He came to fulfill them, and they weren't a separate thing away from Christ, but actually were pointing to Christ. And here Jesus says that uh, there was something greater than the temple here. And I want you to understand that I am the ultimate authority. 
I am the one that is Lord of the Sabbath. And so I would say, as we ask the question, who has authority in the religion of Jesus? And we answer that question, I would put it to us as brothers. Brothers, who has authority in our Christian faith? Day to day, how do we live that out? Who has authority in how we live out our Christian faith? Second question we can ask ourselves as we look at the scope of Matthew 12 is what is the priority of the religion of Jesus? Here, Jesus, uh, you notice, has uh, gone into their synagogue. Notice what says that in verse 9, that Jesus went on from there and entered their synagogue. Um, Matthew's making the point that there's a religion of the Pharisees and there's a religion of Jesus. And Jesus is entering their synagogue where they have set up their religion. And the, the Pharisees there want to trick him. They want to trap him. So they point to this man with a withered hand and they ask, hey, is it is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Pretty sure that they thought they were going to catch Jesus there. Notice Jesus' response, though. He flips the question on them and he talks to them about uh, a sheep, a, a, their own property. You know, cattle was uh, was a form of of monetary possession. It, 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 you needed it for your wealth. You needed it for your provision. So having a uh, sheep was very important to your livelihood. It, it defined part of your wealth. And Jesus here contrasts mercy for this man who may have been, had leprosy on his hand, contrast that with protecting their own possessions. And he basically says, uh, you have rules for the Sabbath on protecting your own possessions. You're pretty sure that your religion takes care of that. Uh, but you need to understand that the priority of the religion of Jesus is mercy. You'll have noticed that he even mentions that before up in verse 7. He says, when he quotes Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And you remember that Jesus has said that before in Matthew chapter 19. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Brothers, let's pause to think about that for a second. The religion of Jesus is one where Jesus wants us to prioritize mercy of others over our own extra biblical rules. I'd say extra biblical on purpose because what is in Scripture, the truth of Scripture, we need to hold to. We don't compromise what is, what is truth in Scripture. I'm not saying that. And God's Word isn't saying that. But Jesus is saying this, that some of our application, some of how we live that out, we need to be careful that the priority of this is mercy for other people, not uh, protection of our property. The protection of our possessions cannot take a priority over our mercy for other people. And notice what happens when Jesus makes that distinction. It's the first time we see in the Gospel of Matthew, there in verse 14, that the Pharisees get so angry, they begin to discuss how they're going to kill Jesus. They don't like this distinction that, they, that he's made, and they don't like the way he teaches, and they don't like the way he challenges their life. They don't like this idea that mercy is supposed to take the priority in the kingdom of God, in, in the religion of Jesus. 
the third uh, question that we can see in the scope of this uh, scripture is, uh, or scope in, in Matthew chapter 12, as we think about the religion of Jesus, is what is the character of this religion? How do we see uh, this played out? You know, in the first uh, two points, um, we want to make sure that that uh, we are in line with uh, with the religion of Jesus by making sure that um, our authority is Christ and our Christian faith. And we want to make sure, even as we think about the priority of mercy, that the priority of our Christian faith, is it? Is the priority of our Christian faith uh, mercy? Um, or is it our extra biblical rules? And here, we want to make sure that that the character of our Christian faith is the same one that Jesus puts forth. It says there in verse 15 that Jesus was aware that the uh, Pharisees wanted to kill him, so he withdrew from the synagogue and he uh, went and went among the people. And it says that he began uh, to heal all of them, that he was displaying his power and he was displaying his mercy uh, as he healed all of these uh, diseases. And then it says, or Matthew points out, that this was a fulfillment of the prophecy that Isaiah made in Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. And you see um, Matthew has uh, um, shown the prophecy there in verses 18 through 21. Now, the Pharisees' view of, uh, and the Jewish view, frankly, of the Messiah was a very different um, picture than what Jesus was as he presented himself and conducted his ministry. You see, when you, if you were a Jew back in that time, and, and frankly, for those who are messy, uh, who are Jews right now, who are, who have not come to faith in Christ, and as they look for the Messiah, when they look at their Old Testaments, when they look at Isaiah and Jeremiah, they don't look at these suffering servant prophecies as related to the Messiah. No, they look at the conquering prophecies as looking. Uh, as pointing to the Messiah. And so when Matthew puts forward here that, that this passage in Isaiah chapter 42 has to do with the Messiah because it has to do with Jesus, that would have been, uh, the, the Jewish people and certainly the Pharisees would have said, no, no, that's, that's not our Messiah. You've got that wrong. You see, our Messiah is a conqueror, and he's a political conqueror, and he's a national conqueror. Our Messiah is going to fix the Roman problem. Our Messiah is going to come in here and he's going to throw out the Romans. Our Messiah is going to come in here and he's going to make Israel great like it once was. That's our Messiah. And so this Jesus, this Jesus can't really be the Messiah. Well, Matthew wants to say, no, this is, this is the Messiah. Because this is the character of this religion. This is the character of this authority. This is the character of the healer. And there's four things we see here uh, in these verses, verses 18 through 21, that Jesus was that displayed his character. First of all, you'll notice in verse 18 um, that he has the Holy Spirit on him. And as you read verse 18, I think you immediately, I did, you immediately think about the baptism of Jesus, where God the Father, remember the voice came and said, this is my son whom I am well pleased and then the Holy Spirit descended upon him. So the character of, of, of this religion is one that begins with the Holy Spirit. Um, it's also one of great kindness and meekness. 
Look at verse 19. He will not quarrel or cry out, nor will he let anyone hear his voice in the streets. It's not just this demanding voice. It's not this demanding uh, um, anger. Now, there's there's something meek about, there's something kind about uh, the character of the religion of Jesus. There's also a gentleness in Jesus, and a, therefore a gentleness is meant to be in the followers of Jesus. Verse 20, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Jesus is going to be gentle. And then I want us to notice, too, that twice in these verses, it talks about justice. Now, I know in, in, in our time, in today's day and age, there is a there's a lot swirling around about the term justice, biblical justice, social justice. Brothers, let's forget about that for a second. Let's not put labels on it. And let's just look at here that this word justice appears here in the New Testament. And of course, it's being quoted from Isaiah chapter 42, where justice appears all over the Old Testament. And what does it mean in the Old Testament? In our Bibles, what does it mean when the word justice is used, what is the scope of the meaning of justice? I love what one, how one scholar puts it. I'm just going to read it to you. It's this, this definition of justice. The setting right of what is not as it should be. And as that is applied to our relationship with the Lord or God, it would be the complete establishing of the will of God. So justice is, biblical justice is, the setting right of what is not as it should be and bringing about the complete establishing of the will of God. And so wherever we see something that is not as it should be, uh, we want to bring about justice in that place because we want to bring about the way God would want it to be. And sometimes that involves making things right um, in our neighborhoods. Um, again, that's a talk for another time. But I just want to make clear this is what, what justice is. And then we need to think out what does that look like. So here we have the character of, of Jesus, the character of the religion of Jesus comes from the Holy Spirit. There's a kindness. There's a meekness. There's a gentleness. There's justice. And I would just say, say to us, or ask us as brothers, is this the character displayed in our Christian faith? Is this what we display in our neighborhoods, in our city? Is this our character? Well, the fourth question we could ask ourselves in the, in the scope of this, um, of this chapter 12 of Matthew is what is the source of, of this religion. What is the source of this religion? We have here a, a, a couple of things. First of all, uh, this the story of Jesus casting out demons. And we know in other places that, that Jesus was doing this often. He was uh, casting demons out of people. But notice here in the verses that we have before us that in verse 23, it says that they were all amazed at what he uh, at what he had done, and the word "amaze" there in the Greek uh, is more than astonished. It's it's like they they can't put it in their heads. They're just like, "What's going on here?" They're, we can't believe the power 
that this man Jesus has. We're just blown away by it. And then they say, could this be the son of David? And see, the tension here for them is this. Uh, Remember that what they think the son of David should be the Messiah would not be meek and kind and gentle uh, in the way he's doing. He shouldn't be someone who's of lowly estate, gentle and lowly, like he said in at the end of, of chapter 12 or chapter 11. No, the, the son of David is supposed to be a conqueror. He's supposed to be a king. He's supposed to be royal. So how does this gentle and lowly servant have this amazing power? Well, the Pharisees propose, you know what, this this power, this must be some kind of sorcery. And of course, this sorcery obviously needs to be from Beelzebub, or really Satan is what they mean. Maybe they just didn't want to use the, the word Satan, but they're saying this is kind of a, this is demonic. Um, clearly, this is not a, the son of David, the Messiah. And so this, this display of power has to be some kind of a, a, a demonic type thing. And, and I think the reason they said that is because um, Jesus wasn't following their religion. So they, they didn't have a category for how he could fit or align with them. And notice what Jesus does in, in response to them. He, he addresses the issue of kingdom because that's, that's what's at the core for them. You see, they were, they were thinking about kingdom, but they were thinking about an earthly kingdom. They were thinking about the, the kingdom of Israel being reestablished and, and great and getting rid of the Romans. They were, they were frustrated that the Romans were infringing upon their religious liberty and, and that they needed to establish control and rule over their own country. And that's what the Messiah was supposed to do for them, to establish them nationally, politically. Jesus makes it clear, though, in these verses that that he's here to fight a spiritual battle, not a political battle, not a national battle. No, he he uh, he wants to talk about that. He wants to talk about the spiritual battle here. And the issue that Jesus brings out and makes very, very clear is this: How are you going to align yourself with the kingdom of God as displayed by the Holy Spirit? And you need to be very careful, he's saying to these Pharisees and to the people around them. You need to be very careful that you, that you don't attribute to Satan what is really something from the Holy Spirit. And you need to decide, am I going to follow the religion of Jesus that is from the Spirit? Or am I going to be bringing in things and making accusations against the religion of Jesus, that um, that really maybe are demonic itself, because it wouldn't make sense, wouldn't make sense that uh, that Jesus would be casting out demons with the help of demons. And Jesus says it makes no sense. But he marks this as make there is a spiritual battle and there is a kingdom here because he mentions that in verse twenty eight. He makes it clear: I cast out demons. And the kingdom of God has come upon you. And he wants to make it clear, and it's not the kingdom of Satan. This is the kingdom of God. So Jesus is saying, hey, listen, it's either of the Holy Spirit, it's either of God, or it's not. You decide. And be very careful about how you decide. Be very careful that you don't attribute something to Satan 
that should be attributed to God. That's certainly what comes out in verses 33 through 37. He's saying, listen, there's good fruit, there's good trees and bad trees. There's good fruit and there's bad fruit. Which fruit are you? Which kind of, which tree, excuse me, which tree are you? Which kind of fruit is produced in your life? Because the source is going to be revealed in the fruit. The source of your religion is going to be revealed in the fruit of that religion. And so I would ask us, is the source of our Christian faith the indwelling spirit? And can we say that? Because the fruit of our Christian faith gives evidence that the source is the indwelling Holy Spirit. It's an important question for us to ask as we look at our lives, as we look at whether or not we're following the religion of Jesus, or if we've made up our own version. The fifth question we could ask ourselves as we look at the scope here of opposition to Jesus would be this. What is the sign of this religion of Jesus? We see that in verses 38 through 42. Uh, the scribes and the Pharisees come to him and they say, we want to see a sign. We need to see a sign. If we we're going to really believe that you're the Messiah, you're the son of David, uh, that you're not in opposition to what we're doing here, uh, we need to see a sign. We need to see proof. What a, what a crazy statement. Have you thought about that? What an amazing thing that they would ask for a sign. I mean, Jesus is healing people. The, the blind uh, see, the lame walk, the, the lepers are made clean. The, uh, uh, the, the demons have been cast out. Uh, it's ridiculous that they're asking for some kind of a sign. And Jesus says to them, listen, I'm not going to give you, I'm not going to give you a sign. Except for one, he said. And then he talks, as he's talked in several other places, and we'll talk again about this wicked and, and sinful generation. Or he says there in verse 39, an evil and adulterous generation. He goes on to talk about Jonah, the prophet Jonah, going to Nineveh and seeking and proclaiming uh, God's judgment and saying, you need to, to repent because uh, uh, the God of Israel, the, he is God, and you need to repent. And then talking about the Queen of Sheba coming to visit uh, Solomon and and saying, basically giving this, this contrast, listen, the Ninevites believed without a sign. The Queen of Sheba seemed to have believed Solomon without a sign. And yet you, the people of Israel, you, the ones who, who hold the Old Testament, uh, you're asking for a sign? You're the ones who are actually witnessing Christ before you are, are asking for a sign in order to believe? That's what Jesus means by you evil and adulterous generation. And just to pause and be careful here. I think sometimes it's, it's, um, it's real easy for us to look back at, at uh, these 
early first century uh, Jews who were in the presence of Jesus or even to look at the disciples and think, oh, wow, I can't believe they didn't believe. I can't believe they didn't repent. I can't believe they didn't follow wholeheartedly. I mean, if I had if I had been there, I mean, how would how easy would it have been to really be a man of faith if I'd been there? I think it's dangerous for us to think like that. I think it's it's um, it's more accurate uh, to to understand that um, uh, our brokenness uh, causes us to be blind unless Christ reveals himself to us in the same way that it took place there in the first century. And honestly, <laughs> some of those first century believers would have said, well, you have the New Testament. You had um, the eyewitness accounts and you had the explanation of Christ's ministry. How is it that you don't believe? How is it that you're doubting? How is it that you don't give your full allegiance? That might be what they say to us. So this conviction about a sign maybe needs to be a conviction we hold to ourselves. Notice here too that twice Jesus says that statement that he says before earlier on in the chapter, something greater than, and he says something greater than Jonah is here. And he says something greater than Solomon is here. And he's talking about himself. He's saying not only did these Ninevites and Queen of Sheba believe believe without a sign, but you have Jonah, this great prophet, proclaiming God's truth. And look at me, something greater than Jonah's here. You had Solomon, this, this great king who had wisdom like no other on the planet. Look at me, something greater than King Solomon is here. And so when Jesus talks about the sign that he's going to give, and he references Jonah being in the belly of a whale for three days and then being uh, um, brought, you know, cast out of the, of the of, or being delivered from the, the whale. He's referencing what is to come, and that is the cross and the resurrection. But don't miss this. Three times in this chapter, Jesus has said something greater than Jonah, uh, David, um, Solomon are here, something greater than the, excuse me, the priesthood are here. And notice what Jesus has done. He has said, you know, the priesthood, something greater than that is here in me. You understand the prophets, something greater than that is here in me. You understand the value of the Kings. Something greater than that is here. I am the completion of all three of those offices. I am priest and prophet and king. And when you see me, Jesus, the priest, the prophet, and the king on the cross displaying the amazing love of Jesus Christ, the forgiving atonement, excuse me, of God the Father through Jesus Christ, and then see me resurrected by the Father, then you will know, you'll have the sign of the religion of Jesus. The sign of the religion of Jesus is the sacrificial death on our behalf of the prophet, priest, and king who is Jesus and his resurrection as the glorious uh, um, victor over death and over sin. That is the sign. And I would ask us, brothers, is the sign, is that sign of the religion of Jesus, is that enough for our Christian faith?
Or are we sometimes demanding God to do more? Lastly, brothers, I think we could ask ourselves the question in verses 43 through 50, who are the true members of this religion of Jesus? Two things here. First of all, in verses 43 through 45, there is this parable of uh, an unclean spirit leaving a person and then coming back with seven more or in perfection, because we know this number seven represents perfection. And we also see uh, this actual event, not a parable, actual event of Jesus' brother and mothers coming to speak to him uh, and he turning to those around him and saying, who are my mother and brothers? It's those who do the, my will, who are truly my family. Jesus is making two things very clear here. First of all, he's making it clear that you cannot be a halfway follower of Jesus. You cannot be a sort of follower, sort of uh, adherent to the religion of Jesus. You can't just be someone like um, this person who gets rid of the bad things, gets rid of the demons, but doesn't replace that with something else. Then you just have an empty house. So it's not, it's not enough to just be a good moral person. It's not enough to just not be anti-Christian. Uh, there has to be an allegiance here. And that's the second thing that Jesus wants to make clear, that following Jesus is full allegiance, not just proximity. Following Jesus, let me say that again, following Jesus means full allegiance allegiance to the will of God, not just proximity, even to the religion of Jesus. It's not just proximity to a church. It's not just membership in a church. It's not just the sign of baptism. It's not just being part of an amen Bible study. No, the religion of Jesus means full allegiance, not just closeness or proximity. And so as we think about who are the true members of this religion, we would want to ask ourselves, is our Christian faith, is my Christian faith characterized by full allegiance to Jesus? Brothers, we've seen in contrast and opposition to the Pharisees' religion that the authority of the religion of Jesus is uh, Christ himself, that the priority of the religion of Jesus is mercy or even our own possessions. The character of the religion of Jesus is one that comes from the Holy Spirit, a meekness, full of meekness, full of gentleness, seeking justice to make right when things aren't as they should be. The source is the Holy Spirit, and that's where the power comes from. The sign is the cross of our prophet, priest, and king, and his glorious resurrection that we're going to celebrate in a week. And the members are those not who are just close to the church, but who give their full allegiance to Jesus. Brothers, this is the religion of Jesus. Question is, is that your religion? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you again for the truth and the beauty of your word. Lord, there is much here 
in this chapter uh, that we did not get to. But I do pray, Father, the things that we have studied, you would seal those things to our heart, that you would work them into our lives. Lord, that we might be men of the cross, that we might be men who practice the religion of Jesus. We ask this all in our Savior, the prophet, priest, and king, Jesus' name. And all God's men said, Amen. Thank you, brothers.